Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Spring is come and we're getting ready to do more and more outside. So thank you for spending some time with us this morning. And we are getting super excited for Easter, not just because of the joy and the newness of Resurrection Sunday, but also because Easter is a bit of a culmination for us here at Commons to our spring season. There has been a lot going on in our community. There's been lots of learning opportunities to be had. We have completed our first series of pop-up theology gatherings. Those were at the Central Library. We did that in March, and I hope some of you were able to check in on some of that. And just yesterday, we hosted a faith and food discussion where we were led by local librarian and thinker and farming farmer, Jeremy Clyde. It was such a good time. And I wanted to just note these things for you here personally, because if you weren't able to attend, these discussions already either have or they will be made available in our media archives. And I mention that because these kinds of conversations are a big part of what we want to be as a community. Yes, we gather around liturgy every week in spaces like this. We center ourselves on the story and person of Jesus. But that shared energy and attention aren't just expressed here in our Sunday gatherings. We really do think that thoughtful and creative engagement with big ideas and questions of meaning, these are important to how commons can help make Calgary a more beautiful and just place to live. So check out those archives. Keep your eyes open for the future opportunities that are coming up around the corner. And having said that, today we are back in our Lenten series. That's part of why I'm wearing our purple stole again, to signify the marking of Christian time as we head towards Easter. And we are in this series looking at a particular set of stories that Jesus told. Last week we picked up this story of some people, or some people refer to it as the parable of the unhelpful friend. And it's called that because Jesus tells a story about a neighbor who needs some bread. And they go to their neighbor's house, and they're promptly told to go away because it's the middle of the night, and we're not getting out to help you. And apparently, that guy keeps knocking, and eventually, the door opens for him. And we noted how, when we looked at this cryptic story as part of Jesus teaching his friends how to pray, in fact, in this story, he's giving them the Lord's Prayer, yes, but he also encourages them to ask, and to seek, and to knock, To persist, it seems, he's saying, until we look a little closer. And like happens so often with things in our lives, when we live with an openness and an attempt to be inquisitive, the story actually seems to wash away our familiar spiritual pathways. And where we thought Jesus was telling us to stick with it, teaching us that spiritual life is measured in long-suffering tenacity, instead, Jesus generally... He gently auto-corrects, and he reminds his friends, grace isn't what rule followers and well-put-together people receive as part of their elite club status. And faith isn't measured by how long you hold on, no, Jesus says. Grace is found in the places where we come to the end of ourselves. And like the guy in the story, we are on the outside looking in. We are stuck in our worst moments. And there, with nothing to presume and only shameless audacity, the text says, we muster courage to hope that God might actually be good. And Jesus says that, that quality of your imperfection combined with your impertinent hope, that is what rouses God to action. That is what will save you. And that is what opens the door to grace. 
And for all of the unanswered prayers we've offered, for all the living we've done thinking that our faith might not be good enough, this is welcome news, at least it is for me, that like all our knocking, and like the knocking neighbor in the middle of the night, it's our weakness that opens the way for the divine in our lives. And we're gonna shift and work our way through another story like this in a moment, but there's one more quick piece here before we move into our preaching today. Some of us may have been following the devastation caused by Cyclone E-Day, the storm that ripped through several African nations just last month. And despite its severity, E-Day has actually not been a significant part of our news cycle here, which is a little bit interesting. This in spite of the fact that they are estimating now that 900,000 children may have been separated from their families during the storm. Many have now been orphaned. And our ongoing partner in this part of the world, Hands at Work, has been already in the areas there doing what they can to support and care for those who are in this crisis. But we also, as a community, have a relationship with an organization called Care Canada. We partnered with them, actually, during the Rohingya crisis. And they did an excellent job of not only responding to that crisis, but then also reporting and communicating with us what was happening there on the ground. And this week, the Canadian government announced a matching program for the response to Cyclone E-Day. And this is why we wanted to let everybody in our community know that we are going to be sending $5,000 to Care Canada this week to be matched by the Canadian government, which will allow us as a community to contribute $10,000 that will land in countries like Mozambique and Zimbabwe and Malawi just to help in this extreme case of emergency. And we're going to keep monitoring the situation and trying to listen and hear what Care Canada can report back to us. But we want to thank you as a community for the ways that you're generous to us so that we can share together and respond in moments like this where there are people in desperate situations. We're going to have some more information available at commons.church/news about CARE's work on the ground there, and then also reports from Hands at Work, who we continue to support monthly in their efforts. Now, as we move forward, let's take a moment, if you will, to join me in praying for those who are facing this crisis and those who are attempting, even now as we're meeting, they're trying to help. They're doing everything they can to make a difference for those who are in this desperate time. So join me now, if you would. God of grace, be near to your people now, to your children in this part of the world as they face devastation and loss. We ask that you would stay close to those who are brokenhearted, and hold fast those whose spirits have been crushed. And we pray that you would lead us, lead those that we partner with, and guide us in our response, and give strength to our friends and siblings who are working even now. And we pray too, in whatever way possible, that by your spirit, you would gently inspire us to reach out, to answer the cries of need wherever we hear them, perhaps even in our immediate world and community here, so that with those who mourn, may be comforted, and those who are frightened would find safe arms, those who are hungry and thirsty would be fed, and those who are homeless find refuge. Oh God, make haste, hear the cry of your people, motivate us to cause and to carry good. We pray in the only name we can, in the name of Christ, our hope, amen. All right. Thank you for joining us in that moment. As we get going today, we are going to look at this parable for our section today, but we're going to do so by looking and doing, or doing something we did last week. And by, what we did was we looked at the context in which Jesus was pictured telling the story. And this is because the setting that a story comes to us 
has a power to influence how we hear and interpret it. And this is a principle that actually gets applied from time to time in our home, especially when our children use colorful language. And I'm not saying that they have potty mouths, I'm just saying that sometimes they use words that they've heard someone say, maybe in frustration, or pain, or in traffic perhaps, or maybe, maybe just at school, or somebody else on the playground, whatever. And Darlene and I don't tend to make a big deal out of these moments. Sometimes we just laugh because we can't help it, but sometimes we say something like, hmm, that's a word that we're not going to use, Okay. Or sometimes we'll say something like, that's not a bad word so much, but make sure you don't say it when your grandmas are around. <laughs> Which is this idea of context, that where and to whom you say something, it matters, right? This makes sense. And in taking this idea, we want to look at the passage in Luke 13 that includes a story in which Jesus helps a woman on the Sabbath. And the basic gist is this. Jesus has gone to synagogue like a good Jew, and along with the rest of the community, he's gathered there, and he's actually been asked to teach. So he's standing at the front of the room, and he sees this woman who has a spine issue. She hasn't been able to stand up for 18 years, the text says. And it just says simply that Jesus touches her, and that her body is restored. It's this really emotional moment. But then what happens is that the leader of the synagogue takes offense at this for some reason. The text says that this is because Jesus did this work on the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to work on that day, yada, yada, yada. And what happens is that this leader's position is shown to be a carefully curated religious position. And it's not particularly uncommon even today in which it's more important to guard divine boundaries and restrictions, as opposed to paying attention to what sets people free and heals them and brings us back to life. Which is not to say that religious rules and what brings us alive are mutually exclusive all the time, no. But what's important is that in this story for our context, this leader's position bothers Jesus. And he reminds the people in the audience who would have preferred that Jesus leave this woman in her condition. She'd suffered for 18 years. What's one more day, Jesus? Wait till Monday. He reminds them that even they bent the Sabbath rules around work so that their own animals didn't die of thirst in the middle of a hot desert afternoon. In effect, calling them out for preferencing religious restrictions over and against moments of transformation and wholeness regardless of how and when they arrive. Sometimes they're inconvenient, which is a really good reminder for us in keeping with this series leading us to Easter, that we don't decide where and when resurrection comes. And to this point, if we pay attention, to, we see that Jesus' entire life and actions regularly point us toward be religious or spiritual in different ways, in ways that maybe we're not used to. And maybe where before we placed more emphasis on strictness, Jesus encourages us to use a lens of health for how to live. Jesus encourages us to think more about vibrancy in a person's life as opposed to safety. And there are a host of ways that we can pick this up. Like when we choose, with care and respect for ourselves, to build connections with that person in our field or business that has a suspect reputation, or that family member who has burned their share of bridges. Or we can pick it up when a friend or a loved one makes choices we don't understand, but they seem to find joy in them. We can choose to celebrate the life that brings them instead of voicing our opinions. 
Or when, too, in our own rhythms and patterns, we can slowly spend less time fighting our vices and give more and more attention to figuring out what and where and who helps us to be authentic and honest and gentle like Jesus. Because part of what this story about Jesus helping this woman hints at is that sometimes our rules and our long-held expectations, these can be the very things that keep us from experiencing grace or from extending it to other people in our lives, keeping us from a way of living that Jesus came to show us that we didn't have to participate in anymore. And listen, This is a great story in its own right, the story of Jesus and this woman in the synagogue. We're going to come back to it right at the end, but as the setting for us today, it's good to note that in the end, Jesus' challenge to these forms of religion shamed the people in the room who were against this woman, and the text says that the crowd was left delighted because of what Jesus was doing. What a great turn of phrase. And right after that, we read this. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What can I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. And it grew and it became a tree, and birds perched in its branches. And again he asked, well, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. So, a couple things to note here about these stories. First, the the first of these stories about the mustard seed, it appears in Matthew and Mark as well, and we're going to talk about that today. But secondly, we note here that Luke includes these parables, and they act as a bit of an addendum of sorts to the story that I've just told you about Jesus standing in the synagogue with this woman, where in effect, Jesus is saying, what you just saw happen here my compassion for this woman and the religious resistance to it, maybe that sparks some questions for you, like, what is the kingdom of God like then? Which is a question that Jesus asks a lot in the Gospels. In some cases, trying to stretch his Jewish audience to think about their own tradition with its history and its practice and trying to get them to think about it in new ways. But then too, at times, Jesus seems to have been trying to help people understand how his own work and his teaching were different than what they'd seen before. Trying to describe a kingdom with different markers than the ones that they saw all around them all the time. And this is why this simile that Jesus uses here is so curious. He says, the kingdom of God, God's reign and power in the world, the kingdom of grace that's come close to you in me, it's like a mustard seed. And that might have raised some eyebrows in the crowd. But what's interesting is how Luke's version of this story differs from the other sources we have in the Gospels. Some of these other sources make a really big deal of how small the mustard seed is. Luke doesn't seem to care about that very much. And there's another example where Matthew puts this parable in, a, in, in the context of another famous Bible story, that of the sower, this farmer who's casting seed, where we see the, the language and the vocabulary, this image of a man just sowing his seed intentionally to bear a crop. And I'm going to throw this section up on the screen for you today because it contrasts with the imagery that Luke uses. Because Luke brings the scale of the story way down, and he brings it into domestic space. See, where Matthew gives us this image of a farmer generously throwing his seed into a field so that he can earn a living, Luke brings us into a courtyard 
to a flower bed, to this small patch of dirt. And he tells us that the goodness that God brings to the world is like a seed that some person just chucks into the dirt beside their house. And we're going to unpack this a little bit, but I want to note something here. One of the ways, at least for me, this is a tale of grace. Because the inference we can pick up at the context here, between the, or the contrast between these two versions, is related to something that Robert Capon notes about all kinds of seeds. And this is something that Jeremy Clyde actually joked about when he was talking yesterday at our Faith and Food and Farming lecture. It's this fact that seeds do their job, often regardless of the methods by which they are planted and tended which is exemplified in this picture I took last summer of my neighbor's house. That is a 10 to 12 inch weed growing in my neighbor's eaves trough, which is 12 feet off the ground and the sun never shines there. And yet somehow this plant is growing in a thin layer of dust and shingle dirt. It's crazy what weeds do, right? And to some degree, this is kind of what, an image like this is what Luke's story does to our imagination. It stretches where we might imagine how in some seasons of our own life, our faith, we can imagine it as a carefully tended part of our life. Like a farmer, we intentionally work with it, we plant it, we water, and maybe we read, we journal, we go to therapy, we pray, we engage our world, whatever. But then there's some seasons in our life where we just don't do that. And we're kind of like Luke's homeowner, maybe, where we just throw some seed into some dirt. Maybe we don't take care of ourselves. Maybe we aren't particularly in tune with our interior life. Maybe we're just busy. We're tending to challenges we're facing. Whatever. The point is that seeds grow. That God's work in us grows, whether we're watching it or not. That's the grace in it. And yes, of course, it always helps for a plant to be cared for and given what it needs to survive, just like your spiritual life does. But today, what we all need to hear is the gentle encouragement that God's kingdom, God's incremental way of making the world better, God's way of changing you, it's like a seed. And it's burrowing its way down into the core of your being as a sign of divine goodness that no dry spell or neglect can keep from flourishing. Now, for the record, these verses that we've read and we're looking at, they've been debated about by biblical scholars and commentators. That's really all these guys have to do anyways. But the point is that they've been trying to understand how Jesus' audiences would have heard a story like this, how they, how they would have understood these words. And this is because Jesus uses some kingdom language in the story. And there's this prominent image of a large tree in the passage and birds coming to rest in it, which many scholars have suggested is an allusion by Jesus to this common idea in the Jewish imagination that went all the way back to the exilic period, where prophets and poets in the ancient period had, they believed that some of what they were looking at in the pain and the displacement of their people, that this was going to be repaired by God, that God would take them from being an obscure group of people scattered everywhere to being a nation again planted like a strong tree where all peoples could come and find refuge and security. 
Then one of these prophets, a guy named Ezekiel, painted this picture in his writing where he said, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is God promising this to God's people. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and will plant it. I'll break break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and a lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I'm going to plant it. It will produce branches and it's going to bear fruit and become a splendid Caesar. Caesar. Cedar. (laughs) Caesar salad. And and birds of every kind are going to come and they're going to rest in it. They're going to find shelter in the shade of its branches. This is beautiful language. And you, you might be able to see, as we've looked at this, how commentators think that it parallels Jesus' parable a little bit. Because in Luke, Jesus talks about this insignificant seed or shoot. A seed from a plant species that does not or cannot become a massive tree. That's not what mustard trees do. But in the story, it does, miraculously. And it becomes a tree not unlike what Ezekiel describes, where all the birds of the air, representative of the nations of the earth, these peoples come and find rest. And this imagery leads to the idea that Jesus was talking about how God's kingdom, this idea that Jesus was trying to reveal and announce with his life and work, how how God's kingdom seemed to be really insignificant but really how it was going to grow to welcome all the peoples of the earth. And that is, no question, that's a beautiful picture. The challenge is that as Amy Jill Levine writes, these perspectives emphasize rightly that great things can come from small beginnings. But Levine sort of, she thinks this is too benign. She thinks this is lazy thinking, and she leans into the text a bit more, and she says, actually, what's far more provocative in the story is to consider what outcomes occur. She says, remember, it's a mustard seed. And in this, she parallels the work of others like Ryan Schellenberg, who point out that in the ancient world, mustard plants were ubiquitous. They were everywhere. And they were so widespread because they had curative properties. One ancient writer, this guy named Pliny the Elder, he talked about how mustard was used to treat snake and scorpion bites and teeth issues and indigestion and asthma and epilepsy, constipation, lethargy, skin issues. He just kept on adding on to that list. And of course, modern medicine would tell us a thing or two about those prescriptions. So don't go home and start putting mustard on everything, which would be gross. The point is that Pliny describes how because of its capacity to aid people's health, The mustard plant was cultivated everywhere in the ancient world. And because of its hardy nature, it was this really, really tough bush, it is referenced in multiple texts as taking over fields and gardens, not unlike the one we see in Jesus' parable, which is how the imagery of grace starts to take shape, I think, where Jesus seems to be saying, you want to know what the world looks like when it's running on grace? You want to catch a glimpse of how my rule will be different than the other kingdoms that are all around you? Look at the mustard seeds. They're everywhere. And you plant them because they make you better. And they counteract the toxins in your life. But the problem is they don't just stay in your gardens and your neatly constructed rows. No, mustard grows and grows until it becomes larger than you could ever imagine. It becomes a tree. 
and a place where everyone has access to its benefits. And so too with grace. Jesus is hinting with this idea that when we live like he taught us, when we confront global injustice and local inequality, when we share our affection with the lonely, when we live with an openness to our neighbors, with forgiveness to those who hurt us, when we do these things, we don't just plant and reap the medicinal benefits of God's kingdom for ourselves. That's impossible. Because not unlike mustard plants, grace has a way of getting out of our lives. It has a way of growing into something that is always inviting everybody into its embrace. Which brings us back to Levine's encouragement to think about what outcomes this story hints at for just a second. To this parable of woman making bread that we haven't touched on yet. See, in that story, Jesus compares the kingdom of grace to yeast that a woman mixes into her dough. And where the mustard seed parable shows us a small medicinal plant overcoming a domestic garden to become a shading tree for birds, and frankly, becoming a health benefit for anybody passing by, this story of bread making does something really similarly because it tells us that this woman places the yeast that she has into almost 30 kilos of flour. The inference being that she's, just, she's not making a couple loaves for her family. The inference is that 150 people are going to be fed with this bread she's made. And I love what this means about grace, the implications that it has. That like a plant overwhelming a garden, to the degree that like some of you will with your gardens and the fruit they produce, you're going to call your family and friends to come and get the extra tomatoes that you can't use. And like a vast number of bread rolls who will fill any house with their aroma and draw everybody to the kitchen with their carb cravings, God's kingdom is one of extravagant excess like this too, where there's way more grace than any one person can use. And it's these profound potential outcomes that Levine asks us to consider with yet another invitation. Asking us when, what might happen when we imagine God's goodness as what comes to us in the simple joys we experience. Like when people love us with steadiness. And when we discover grace in the beauty of nature and in the laughter of children and in the ways that pleasure affirms us and enlivens us, Maybe we find it in the quiet moments where we find deeper peace than we've ever been able to manufacture. All of these things are more than we can use on our own. And as a result, Levine prods us and pushes us to think of how Jesus talking about yeast and flour turn into bread and how seeds turn into plants. How in the initial story, Jesus' tender touch actually restored a woman's back. We're challenged to think about how grace has so much potential and so much power. Potential that has to be planted and mixed in and extended to do its work. Which is a reminder that grace is not just a thing. It's not just a state of being. It's not just a place we come to where we accept God's kind and generous gifts. But that grace is something that we do. 
And like in these parables where we might be tempted to see grace as only the reward and the fruit and the harvest, the excess of God's divine work in the world, we're reminded that grace is what we do when we share kind words with a friend who's grieving. It's found in our tender embraces to the resistant and the awkward people in our lives. It's our creative expressiveness pressed out through our anxiety and our fear that we feel so often. And it's found too in our fierce contention for others' safety and others' well-being and others' flourishing. All of these things, seeds planted in soil and yeast mixed into the dough of life with promises of health and healing and feasting for all. So, with this in mind, may you grace well this week, friends. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for the ways that these stories come to us. They're old, they're ancient, and yet when we take time and we're patient with them, they come alive and they begin to restore us and shift the things in us that maybe we haven't been able to move before. And they begin to water the parts of our hearts that maybe we feel are a bit dry. We're thankful for the ways that your teaching does this. For the ways that when we look at the text, it's not just stories you told. We see that you lived these truths out as you did with this woman in the synagogue We're thankful for the ways that you stretch all of us to consider not that religious restrictions and rules are what's important, but instead that we should look to our health and our wholeness as we look at you and learn to trust this process that grace works in us. Thankful, too, for the ways in which we see that grace works like seeds and it works like yeast, But we pray, too, that you would plant this goodness deep in us, that you would help it to grow, and that we would work together with you in this kind work you're doing in us, not resisting your goodness, Lord. Seeing that grace is everywhere, that it's good for everyone, that it heals everyone. Teach us to see this, we ask, and then teach us to plant it and mix it into every moment that we have. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.